come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliah and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or in the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called to Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him, him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. The Sa- then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the, midst of the, of, in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel, Samuel rose upon up and went to Rama. Right. How awesome you are, God, and how awesome is your word, and it's such a privilege to come before it. And though our hearts are often cold, I pray that you would warm them this morning. We behold your magnificence in this magnificent passage. May your Holy Spirit rush upon us, rush within us, and give us eyes that would see not not what is on the outside, but what is in the deep, profound realities of your words. In Christ's name, amen. Last week, we saw the stage set for a king to rule in Israel. The elders of the land, the elders of Israel, gathered around Samuel's home, Samuel being Israel's prophet and judge, and they came to Ramah to his house, and they demanded that Samuel give them a king. And Samuel was immediately angered by this, incredibly displeased. He understood that this demand of a king meant the rejection of Yahweh. And from its very beginning, Adonai, Yahweh, was to be king over Israel, the divine king, who reigned through relational covenant rather than through power and privilege, like all the other nations had done. And so regarding this demand for a king, God spoke to Samuel these words, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Thus, God allowed Saul to become the first king of Israel. To the eyes of the Israelites, Saul was very impressive. In chapter 9, you can see that he came from a wealthy family. He was a head taller than everybody else who was around them. If you remember Russ Wilday. And 
Saul was incredibly handsome. It says he was the most handsome in all of the land. So by all human standards, Saul was an impressive specimen. But it didn't take long for King Saul to lose his footing. In arrogance, he abused his power. We see that in chapter 14. He treats his troops poorly. In chapter 13, Saul assumes that he has a good reason to disobey God's command, and so he publicly makes an unlawful sacrifice. And then, in chapter 15, in yet another incident, Saul fails to obey God's command and destroy the spoils of war. He lets his, his soldiers take those spoils. And in so doing, he rejects the word of the Lord. And so, Saul prepares to make another unlawful sacrifice, hoping that he can appease the God which he just disobeyed. And God was not appeased. Instead, Saul receives these condemning words from Samuel. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the word of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than to sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is at the sin of divination. For rebellion is as the sin of divination. And presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Imagine the horror of hearing those words. Saul had only been king for about three years when he hears them. Already, Yahweh's rejecting his kingship. God gave the people what they wanted, this king, and what they wanted failed. So it's remarkable that God doesn't immediately just dissolve this whole business of, of a king. It clearly didn't work. And all of you people now see it didn't work. The proof is there. The proof of covenantal failure. It's obvious. But no, God does not dissolve this. In fact, as we saw last week, God has been preparing Israel for a king. God wants a king in Israel. He just wants a king of another sort. As in, in 1 Samuel 13, 14, we read, The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over the people, over his people. So God wanted a man that loved him, whose passions were in line with his own passions, not a man that embodied the heart of a sinful nation. He wanted a man that embodied his own heart. Now, this did not mean that that Saul's throne was immediately taken away. In fact, Saul would continue to reign as king for the rest of his life until he died in battle some 13 years later or so. God's rejection of Saul would mean that he would no longer support him. It meant that Saul's sons would not inherit the throne and duck ruler. Another king, Saul was like a a lame duck ruler. So as we look at our passage today, that was some context. As we look at our passage today, we're going we're to follow Samuel's journey 
to God's anointed. And then we're going to look through the shadows to see God's anointed. Look at verse 1 again. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king amongst his sons. So chapter 15 ended with Samuel telling Saul that God had rejected him. And then Samuel returns to his home in Ramah and grieves. The Hebrew language used for grieving here is the same sort of language that you would use for grieving the death of a loved one. Like this deep, mournful, dark grief that Samuel has for Saul. And you've got to think, why? Why is Samuel grieving for Saul? Samuel didn't even want a king in the first place. He wasn't a big fan of Saul's. He's repeatedly rebuked Saul for all of Saul's covenantal failures. So why in the world is this prophet grieving the loss of Saul's kingship, the Lord's rejection of Saul? I love the Bible because so many times it makes us ask a question and then it doesn't answer it. But it gives us enough. So linked, I think there's something linked to, some, to words that Samuel had spoken to Israel years earlier. Samuel said this, If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. So now that Israel had a king, it meant that one man, a single individual, represented an entire nation of people. One man's covenant faithfulness now had national consequences. That's a little scary. And now this one man whose covenant faithfulness had powerful implications for a nation, this one man has been rejected by God. And I think Samuel is so grieved because Saul's rejection should have meant Israel's rejection. As goes the king, so goes the nation. And I think Samuel understands this. But what we see is that Israel is in tension. The king is pulling Israel in one direction, and the prophet Samuel is pulling it in another direction, and it's, it's a nation that's being potentially torn in two. You can imagine the grief of Samuel over this nation, God's chosen people. So like a figurehead of his own sort, Samuel's grief was the grief of a nation grieving a king with no promise in a country with no apparent royal future. And sooner or later, the Canaanite tide would sweep all of God's chosen people away. And so Samuel grieved, completely aware of the inevitability 
despite the king's failures, despite the fact that Saul stirred God's anger, and despite God's warning that when this day come, he said he would not listen to them. We read that last week. Despite all of that, God remains true to the covenant. God remains true. And he remembers his promise to Abraham. And he remembers his promise to Israel at Sinai. And God's patience and God's mercy abounds where there is human failing. It is like a future king of Israel would say, Blessed are you when you weep now, for you shall laugh. And in the midst of Samuel's grave sorrow, God springs hope to life. Does he not love to do this? To resurrect the dead? To bring hope to the darkness? He does. And so a horn filled with oil meant only one thing. A king. There was a king that needed to be anointed. And then all the following words spoken by God establish an immediate contrast. First, Saul was the people's choice. This new king was God's choice. Do you see that in verse 1? Second, Saul was the fulfillment of people's pragmatism, but this new king is the fulfillment of prophecy. We saw this in 1 Samuel chapter 2. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. His anointed. This is the one that Samuel is to go find. The third contrast, and this will become more apparent as we go, Saul came from a wealthy, powerful family. The family of Jesse is a nearly unknown quantity, insignificant. Who's this guy? Fourth contrast, Bethlehem was located outside of anything significant in Israel at the time. Look at this map. Here's Mizpah. That's the place that Israel gathered to worship, to hear from the prophet, to make congregational decisions. Ramah is Samuel's home, and Samuel would go up to Mizpah, and then he would go to Bethel, and then he would go out to Gilgal, and he'd make this circuit once a year and go back to his home in Ramah. Saul established the kingdom, the, the throne in Gibeah, right here. Jerusalem wasn't even called Jerusalem at this point. It was called Jebus, and it was ruled by the Jebusites. The Israelites hadn't even conquered it yet. And the Ark of the Covenant, that was in some guy's house out here in Kiriath-Jerim. Bethlehem, totally obscure. Entirely outside of all of Israel's activity. This insignificant village. And so when God says to Samuel that he was to find Jesse, the Bethlehemite, that one of Jesse's sons would be the king? Silly. I wonder if Samuel knew that Jesse was the grandson of Boaz and Ruth. That Jesse was at least a quarter Moabite, making him even... More undesirable. I, I know that Samuel would have understood Bethlehem belonged to the tribe of Judah. But did Samuel remember the ancient prophetic words of the patriarch Jacob who said that a scepter, a king, would come from Judah? Did Samuel remember? 
It's unclear. But what is clear is Samuel's first reaction to this mission that God is sending him on to find Jesse the Bethlehemite. He's afraid. He's immediately afraid. Verse 2 we read, And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him who I will declare to you. So Saul is fully aware that Yahweh has rejected him as the king. And Samuel knows that if Saul catches him, catches wind that, that he's headed down to Bethlehem with a horn full of anointing oil, Samuel's life will be in jeopardy. He will be killed, he says. Saul might be rejected, but he's still the king and he still wields the power of a military. Anointing someone else as king would certainly be perceived as an act of treason. Samuel knows it. And so to avoid this kind of unwanted attention, Yahweh devises a prudent solution. He is to offer a sacrifice. In other words, God is telling Samuel, go to the Bethlehemites and lead them in a worship service, essentially. Make sure that Jesse gets an invitation to this thing. Make sure he's present for this worship service. And then somehow during the ceremony of sacrifice, God is going to reveal which one of Jesse's sons is going to be the next king of Israel. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So Samuel obediently makes a 10-mile or so trip down to Bethlehem from his home in Ramah. And so as a standard in the ancient world, the elders sit in the courtyard just inside the city gates of Bethlehem and likely word had reached them that this great one from the north is coming down to their little tiny town headed their way God's foremost prophet of all the earth and they are terrified commentator commentator Walter Brueggemann perfectly articulates why the elders are afraid of Samuel Surely this is not trembling before the prophetic office, but because of political risk. They know that Samuel is a kingmaker and a kingbreaker. Whenever the high officials of the court come to the village, there can be only trouble and risk. Such officials never come to give, but always to take. Either Samuel is Saul's man, come to forage in the unclaimed south, or he is not Saul's man, which puts them at risk with Saul. The elders assume themselves to be in a no-win situation. Only the most naive could imagine this great one from the north came south for a mere sacrifice. So the elders of Bethlehem fear the political consequences of Samuel's presence. Samuel assures the elders of Bethlehem that he has come in peace. There's nothing to worry about. We're going to have a worship service. 
And so he makes a time for the sacrifice. Apparently, he sets an appointed time. Maybe it's that evening or the next day. And in the meantime, he tells the elders of Bethlehem to go consecrate themselves. There's a mosaic ritual that they needed to go through to cleanse themselves, to go through a process of cleansing. So do this, consecrate yourselves before the ceremony. Now this, once fears were assuaged, this would have been the most exciting, most important thing that happened in Bethlehem in living memory. For as the biblical, biblical account goes, not a prophet or a king or a judge has been to Bethlehem in more than a hundred years. And so they, the town would have been in a frenzy, excited about this now, once they realize that Samuel's not ill-intentioned. So the elders are off consecrating themselves. The town is busy with anticipation and probably making preparations for this great ceremony. Meanwhile, Samuel goes off and he tracks down Jesse. And then Samuel himself personally consecrates Jesse and his sons. This is an important detail. Because it indicates for us that Jesse is not one of Bethlehem's elders. He is not powerful. He is not wealthy. He is not a man of influence. Jesse is just a hardworking father, faithful to the Lord. And Samuel takes every step to make sure that Jesse will be present. He consecrates him. He, he processes him through the ritual. He gives him the personal invitation from the prophet himself. Jesse will be there, and Jesse's sons will be there. Verse 6. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. When the sons of Jesse pass before Samuel, it's clearly not happening in the middle of the whole ceremony. I mean, that'd be risky for Samuel and for Jesse's family. Additionally, Samuel was the only one at this point who knew what he was there to do, really. He was the only one who knew that there was a horn filled with oil, that a king would be anointed for Israel. The last thing Samuel would have wanted was publicity. So it's very likely that after the main events of the ceremony, and then Samuel would have already have seen Eliab, these thoughts would have been ruminating in his mind for hours. Eliab was the obvious choice. He's the oldest. We can do, deduce from what God says in verse 7 that Eliab was both tall and handsome. He impressed the prophet. like the, He was something to look at. Samuel thought, this is the guy. And then God speaks the most profound statement in this entire chapter. Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Not only are these words significant revelation about God's omniscience, but they are spoken as a sharp rebuke to the prophet. 
Samuel's drawn to Eliab for the exact same reasons that the people got excited about Saul. Height and handsomeness. And if these are the full measures of a man, they fall short in the kingdom of God. God will not choose a king based on the features of his body. But we would. Is not our culture saturated with that kind of thinking? Everywhere you look. I bet it's weaving its way through your heads right now or this morning. How foolish when the people, especially the people of God, evaluate others, evaluate themselves based upon the shape of a body or physical appearance or other such superficial qualities. How foolish if only each one of us would receive Samuel's rebuke as our own. Clearly, this foremost prophet on the earth, even Samuel, does not understand the mind of God, and he is colored by his own sin. Doesn't Samuel remember the words of the Lord that passed through his own lips? The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. What profound insight about God. If Yahweh will choose a man after his own heart, does that not mean that he has the ability to see into the deep recesses of the human soul, search every hidden corner, know every past desire and all future thoughts, he knows them all. Such do his eyes exhaustively penetrate every human heart. Proverbs 20.27 says, the spirit of a man is a lamp of the Lord, searching all his inmost parts. Like everything that you think is dark and hidden inside of you is illuminated and bright and revealed before the eyes of the Lord. He sees all of it. Nothing can be hidden, or, or sorry, many things can be hidden from the eyes of men. But before God, there is no such thing as privacy. There is no incognito mode. And what is it that God seeks in the hearts of people? What is he looking for? He's not looking for sin. He knows that's there. He looks to see if his law is written on those hearts. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. God seeks, searches human hearts to see if his law of love is written there. Eliab came from a godly family, but his heart betrays him. He is not God's man. And so Jesse parades more sons before Samuel, six sons, and all their hearts fall short before the all-seeing eye of God. It's not that these sons are wicked. I mean, they're wicked, but it's not that they're wicked. Not at all. It's just that their hearts 
cannot ascend to the incredibly high standard which God holds for the king. The standard is unbelievably high. So none of the seven sons are chosen by Yahweh. But there is an eighth. There is an eighth son. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest. But behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. In Hebrew society, the youngest son was the least significant. Children were insignificant to begin with. We saw that in Sunday school class this morning. But the youngest son, no position. Totally insignificant. And this son is likely probably close to 15 or 16. It's clearly demonstrated here that this young son is disregarded because the older sons all get to enjoy invitation and participation in this worship ceremony and being in the presence of the prophet of God. But the youngest boy is not invited. Go out and tend to the sheep while we participate in this great event. His lot was the pasture. Isn't that awesome? That God's anointed is first a shepherd. How significant that he knows how to care for his sheep. Sammy wants to see him. Even if it took a long while, I don't care how far away that field is, that pasture is, go get him. We're not even going to sit down till he gets here. Do you imagine these older brothers? What do you want him for? You're going to make us stand around and wait for him to come? Verse 12, And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for he is the one. Do you see the incredible irony in that statement right there? When this eighth son arrives, he's immediately described by how he looks. He's handsome. He has beautiful eyes. He has this reddish, strong appearance. So evidently, good looks ran in Jesse's family. But even though this is true, it has nothing to do with God's choice. God does not look on the outward appearance, but what is in the heart. This boy is the man after God's own heart. And the word of the Lord comes to Samuel. Anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. The youngest brother is anointed in the midst of his brothers. They were asking, perhaps, who will be the greatest? No one else seems to be around except the brothers and Samuel and Jesse. How strange it must have been to all of them that this young shepherd boy, this insignificant son, is to be the high king of Israel. Notice also that God is the only one who speaks here. 
The boy arrives, Samuel is silent. He simply pours the anointing oil upon his head. Jesse and the sons are silent. Perhaps they are dumbfounded by what is happening in front of them. And the boy, this young boy, is silent. He's likely reeling at the events unfolding. There's oil coming down his head. What is happening? But then, something happens that changes the course of human history. The Spirit of God rushed upon this boy. And at long last, we finally learned the name of the chosen king. Finally, David. He is David. When Saul was anointed king, the Spirit of God rushed upon him. But things are different here. God removed the Spirit from Saul when he rejected him. But the Spirit rushed upon Saul at that time despite the circumstances, despite the pragmatic nature of his kingship, despite the condition of Saul's heart, despite all of that, God rushed his Spirit upon Saul. Now that, Saul, that, that Spirit has been removed from Saul, and now the Spirit rushes upon David because David is God's chosen. God has seen David's heart. God wants David. And so the Spirit rests upon David for his entire life. Is never taken from David. And when the Spirit of God rushes upon David, it's not in the way that we often think about it today. This is not an indwelling. This is not the Spirit coming to reside within a person. This is a rushing upon. We see it described elsewhere in Scripture as a resting upon. It's more like a presence, an influence. Think of it more like a life-giving jacket that you put on. It can be removed, but in the New Testament, it isn't a jacket. It's a heart transplant. Once given, the indwelling Holy Spirit cannot be removed, can never be removed. So we, though we learn who God's chosen king is, David, this narrative is absolutely gushing about the identity of God, about the nature of God, about revelation of Yahweh. We are revealed who the king is, but this is all about God. Three divine revelations, just three. God loves to take the weak and the marginalized, and he delights to choose them and make them mighty. For in the kingdom of God, it is the least who are the greatest. Secondly, God searches the hearts and he knows. And all pretense is laid bare before his eye. Third, Yahweh gives his Holy Spirit to whomever he chooses. He chooses. And we see in each one of these three revelations the wonders of God's election. And we are unable to plumb the very mysterious depths of God's election. And today I do not have time to plumb very far. But how, even though we cannot get to its depths, he does allow us to go incredibly deep. And the way that we go deep 
is by looking at God's anointed and seeing glory revealed. You know what we're we're tempted to do? We're tempted to lower our gaze and look right here. How wonderful must I be that God has chosen me? There must be something special he sees in me that makes him love me. That I would be counted as one of the elect. Full. You are like Saul with your presumption. Think instead of how this entire narrative is building attention. It forces you to look elsewhere. It forces you to anticipate another, an anointed. Saul's been rejected for his presumption. God's prophet mourns. And yet there is another king, a chosen king. And God said Samuel to this obscure place to find the king, to search for the king. And he must navigate political danger and risk and tension. And Samuel thinks that he has found the king, but it's not Eliab, nor is it the six other sons. There is still another, but he must wait for his arrival. And then finally, finally, after 411 words, the king is named. David. And that whole time, there's this tension that the narrative is building. And yet even there, in that, there's tension. A meta-tension. For David is just a type. He's just a foreshadowing. He is God's chosen king, but he is not the chosen king for which all history awaits. David only points to a far greater anointed one, the son of David, the Messiah, the Christ. Behold, we see him here through the shadows of this very passage. We see him so clearly through a series of similarities and contrasts and escalations. So for some similarities, David is of the tribe of Judah from Bethlehem. So was Jesus. David was an outsider. So was Jesus. David was disregarded. So was Jesus. Now contrasts. David was attractive. Isaiah 53.2 informs us that Jesus had no form or majesty that we should look at him. He didn't look like anybody. David was anointed with a kingmaker's oil to signal that he was the high king. A random woman anointed Jesus with oil, a sinner. And Jesus said that it signaled his death. And now some escalations. David's family was insignificant. Jesse, who? Jesus' family was despised and slandered by the unbelievably strange circumstances of a virgin birth. David was a shepherd of sheep. Jesus is the chief shepherd of the church, of God's sheep. David was God's chosen, but of Jesus, Yahweh spoke, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. David was the son of Jesse, Jesus the son of the living God. The spirit rushed upon David. The spirit rushes from Jesus to 
and to indwell all who believe. So no, we must not think ourselves special. That God has chosen us? No. Rather, let us rejoice in God's anointed king and marvel that this king would love wretches like us and pour his spirit upon us who did not deserve it. Here in 1 Samuel 16, we have learned the name of God's anointed chosen king, David. And here in 1 Samuel 16, the glory of the anointed one is just beginning to break through the shadows. You see, we are a people who are called to look beyond what is seen. We look beyond the shadows of David, the son of Jesse, to see Jesus, the son of God. Likewise, we look beyond our bodies and our station in life to see new creations in Christ, recipients of this abiding Holy Spirit that comes from Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Look. Look over here. Sitting next to you, they indeed believe are living, breathing images of this awesome anointed king. Let us not regard one another according to the flesh but as new creations in Christ. But we have a giant problem, don't we? These hearts that cannot ascend, these hearts that are so unworthy, it is our giant problem, and next week we will consider that giant problem. None of us can face the fact that our hearts are filled with sin and they fail the test of faith, And God's omniscient eyes know it. We need someone to intervene. And by God's grace, he has provided this unexpected deliverer to slay our giant problem. Let's pray. It is a wonder to see the ways that you work, God, and to consider them and to, to be so small beside all of that. How awesome you are. There isn't one person here who has deserved anything. But by your grace, by your faithfulness to the covenant, by giving us a king, you call us loved sons and daughters, brothers and sisters of this king. Wonders of heaven that break upon this very fragile earth. And we praise you for it. May these things penetrate our hearts and that as we 
interact with one another and look upon one another, we would see these things and not that surfacey stuff that would so distract us. Thank you for the glory of heaven seen through human eyes. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.